Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On our program tonight, the Prime Minister will unveil a package of federal measures Wednesday to ease the economic impact of the COVID-19 outbreak, including supports for workers and provinces. On a day when more than 200 Canadians from a cruise ship in the U.S. hit by the virus returned to a two-week quarantine in Canada, where could the outbreak go next? She's an unknown in the Conservative leadership race, but Leslin Lewis is determined to make her mark. Forget a hidden Conservative agenda. She's running on that agenda. She joins me to talk about her candidacy. And the latest on the efforts to resolve the First Nation land claims dispute that led to anti-pipeline blockades in this country. One chief comes to Parliament to warn women leaders are being shut out of the process. We'll begin tonight with the latest on the COVID-19 outbreak on every front tonight. First, a plane load of 228 Canadians landed in Trenton, Ontario this morning after leaving a coronavirus-struck cruise ship in California. They'll now remain in quarantine at Canadian Forces Base Trenton for the next two weeks. Some of the 19 crew members of the cruise ship are Canadian, and they'll remain on board the ship in quarantine there. In terms of the latest numbers in this country, there are 94 confirmed cases in Canada now, 36 in Ontario. British Columbia now has 39 cases. There are now 14 cases in Alberta and five in Quebec. On the economic front, stock markets and oil prices bounced back somewhat today, but nowhere near enough to make up for Monday's massive losses. Air Canada announced today it's suspending all flights between Canada and Italy until May 1st, as that country deals with a growing outbreak. Today, the Prime Minister promised to help for workers in this country who may be affected by the COVID-19 outbreak. That help will come tomorrow, but today he wasn't offering any details. We recognize that there are uh, going to be significant economic impacts for Canadians, for workers, for businesses. Um, That's why we're going to be uh, talking very soon about measures that Canada is going to put forward to support people on the economic side. On the health side, we're going to continue to act in ways uh, recommended by the top experts, by the top medical professionals, coordinate with other uh, levels of government, coordinate with the international community, do everything we can to keep ensuring that Canadians are kept safe. And in the House of Commons today, the Prime Minister faced more questions about his government's deficit spending and the ability to respond to the fallout from the COVID-19 outbreak. There were two Conservative budgets prior to the Great Global Recession. And let's look at those budgets. 2006, according to the public accounts, a $13.8 billion surplus. 2007, delivered again by Jim Flaherty a $9.6 billion surplus. Conservatives did the responsible thing and paid off debt to cushion us against the hard times that were to come, and that's why we had the strongest response to the great global recession. Why did he spend the cupboard bare in the good times and leave us so weak and vulnerable now in the hard times? Right, Honourable Prime Minister. Speaker, the member opposite asks a good question. 
Why? Why did we invest in Canadians? Why did we put more money in the pockets of the middle class? Because we knew it would create growth for Canadians. It would lift millions of people out of poverty. It would support families and seniors. It would grow our economy by investing in infrastructure that they had neglected for a decade, Mr. Speaker. Our investments have created growth that gives us the room to maneuver now, and we have the firepower to be able to invest in our economy given the coronavirus challenge, Mr. Speaker. That's the So the Prime Minister insists help for Canadian workers and industries hit by the COVID-19 outbreak is on the way. Uh, We might hear more about that as early as tomorrow. What should we expect? Let's go to the foyer of the House of Commons tonight and three members of Parliament to discuss the latest. Greg Fergus is a Quebec Liberal MP and the Parliamentary Secretary to the President of the Treasury Board. Pat Kelly is an Alberta Conservative MP and the Associate Finance Critic for the Official Opposition. Peter Julian is a British Columbia MP and the Finance Critic for the NDP. Good to see you all, gentlemen. Thanks for being with us tonight. Uh, Again, lots to talk about as this story continues to evolve. Mr. Fergus, let me start with you. Prime Minister, the Deputy Prime Minister, the Finance Minister are all promising the federal government will be announcing support measures for workers and sectors hit by the fallout from the COVID-19 outbreak. Can you tell us when that will be announced? I, I, I would be happy to tell you about that, but before I do, let me just say right off the top, I'd just like to thank uh, Canadians, especially for all healthcare workers, the chief medical officers and provinces across this country for cooperating so well on dealing with what is an important public health uh, situation. Uh, and to that end, as the government has done and as Parliament has done, uh, we are coming together to making sure that we're going to be uh, announcing some measures which are going to be helping uh, Canadians uh, deal with this uh, particular situation. Can you confirm we'll get those details tomorrow? I can confirm that we will get those details tomorrow. Okay. Uh, and what should we expect? Uh, we're hearing it could be an announcement from the Prime Minister as early as, as tomorrow uh, and, and dealing with measures that the government could take uh, perhaps to loosen restrictions on employment insurance benefits or uh, something such as that to help people who uh, may have trouble going to work or have to stay home from work because of this. How much can you tell us tonight? Well, I'm going to, I don't want to scoop myself, but scoop the government. So I'm going to allow the government to do that. (laughs) Go ahead. I'll let let them announce that tomorrow uh, with the fullness of time and the fullness of information. But what I can say though, is that um, it's really important that the reason why Canada has done so well uh, compared to so many of our neighbors and people around the world and we're recognized as being leaders on this file is because we've made sure that there's a lot of transparency, uh, that we've shared information that uh, hospitals and uh, provincial health ministries as well as the federal health ministry have been working together to deal with this fight, uh, to deal with this fight against uh, uh, coronavirus, uh, uh, the coronavirus, right. and I think it's just really important that we always try to stick together because you know germs, they don't know any partisan issues; uh, they just act, and so we have to make sure that we're united. Okay, let me let me together. hear from your colleagues here, Mr. Kelly. Your your party attacked the government again today for deficit spending instead of building surpluses over time for an economic an economic shock, pardon me, such as this. Uh, But now that we're here, how do you want to see the government respond to the economic impacts of COVID-19? When you hear what the Prime Minister has to announce tomorrow, what do you want him to be talking about? Well, it's, it's a real shame that the government squandered the booming global economy that it inherited, along with the strength that the previous government left it financially. And so now that uh, Canada faces uh, a whole series of crises. The, the, the virus is, is one among many uh, really troubling headwinds that we're running into. 
Uh, we saw in the fourth quarter of last year, uh, economic growth had ground just about to a halt with only 0.3% uh, growth. That was before the virus broke. Uh, we had the blockades and, and have uh, capital flight that uh, has taken place in response to the blockades. We have the, we've witnessed this, uh, this recent crash in the, in the markets, but yeah. uh, the, the catastrophic collapse of the price of oil is going to affect this government as well. So the fact that they had squandered the, the good fortune that they inherited has limited their fiscal capacity to act, and it's very disappointing. Okay, so, so okay, and, uh, let, let me, uh, you've made the point about what they should have been doing. Uh, now we're at a point where they're talking about helping out these sectors hit. So do you want them to spend more money or possibly give up revenue to be able to help those Canadians who are affected by this virus? Or do you want them, do you want, do you want them to not spend any more money? No, we, we want uh, the government to, to table and show and, and be straight with Canadians on, on their plan. Um, we have been concerned, um, not, notwithstanding Mr. Fergus's comments about uh, the level of transparency, um, we had been calling upon the government to, uh, to table its plans earlier, and I think there's quite a bit of uncertainty around uh, what, how prepared this government is for the crisis. And we do look forward, though, to tomorrow's announcement, oh, okay. and we'll have more on that when, when we know what they have announced. Mr. Julian, the Democrats repeated uh, uh, your demands, the party's demands today, uh, for support for workers. How urgently do you believe the government needs to announce these supports. Let's let's start there. Uh, uh, if we get this tomorrow, are, are you satisfied that, okay, they're moving quickly? Well, we'll see what the details are. I mean, they've been weeks overdue. This is not something that uh, that developed a few days ago. It's been weeks in the making. And uh, last week, the finance minister could only promise to make an announcement at some point. Uh, I would praise the provincial health authorities, particularly in British Columbia. Uh, the BC government has been uh, really stellar in being proactive and uh, the provincial health officer as well. So um, even though we are seeing a progression in the outbreak, uh, the provincial health authorities have been acting without a lot of federal leadership. What they need to announce tomorrow, number one, is a plan so that workers actually who don't have access to paid sick leave uh, don't have to choose between feeding their families and, and quarantining themselves. So that uh, that, that uh, dire choice is taken away and, and the support is there. Number two, uh, we've seen under both conservative and health and Liberal governments uh, cut back in health care funding. And what we need to do is provide the health care resources so that people uh, get the care that they need. And, and three, uh, very worrisome about this cabinet committee that doesn't include as a full-time permanent or per permanent member, uh, the Minister of Indigenous Affairs. And so Indigenous communities, uh, we should certainly have learned from past outbreaks, uh, need to have the supports in place. And, and we're not seeing that from okay. the government either. The, Those are the areas they need to tackle. Okay, we, we may see some, some, well, we know there's gonna be a conversation around health transfers when the first ministers get together later this week. So uh, some of that may be addressed, we'll see. But Mr. Fergus, let me come back to you. The, the, I mean, it's been pointed out uh, by Mr. Kelly and by others, of course, that the, this COVID-19 shock really can't be looked at in isolation. Oil prices are soft, economic growth is being revised downward, and I guess I want to look ahead a bit. Should the government open the spending taps in the upcoming budget, not just what, with whatever it's going to announce tomorrow? And I'm, I get uh, my understanding is this will be the first in a wave of announcements to help people who are dealing with the uh, COVID-19 outbreak. But should the government be looking at a stimulus budget beyond whatever immediate help is announced for those hit by the virus tomorrow? 
Well, I think, first of all, I, mean, just have, I just have to correct the record. I think there's a, there's a couple of things that Mr. Kelly said which is not correct. Uh, this government has a, a stellar economic record. We've had 1.2 million uh, uh, people who, have, have, who didn't have jobs four and a half years ago who now have full-time jobs. We have over a million people who've been taken out of poverty. And I think Canadians understand, frankly, is that when you work together, and we share that prosperity together, then I think we're also more inclined to make sure that we share the risks right, together. But, but this is what we're doing on terms what I'm, what of I'm the, What I'm asking is that I think there's an acknowledgement in all quarters that the economy is softening. Uh, some people are talking right. about it's heading for a recession. So does that argue for spending even more uh, when you unveil the next well, budget? Well, I, all I know is that the measures which are going to be uh, mentioned tomorrow is that we'll have the fiscal capacity to do so because Canada has the best fiscal capacity out of the G7 countries. We have the lowest debt-to-GDP ratio. Uh, we have some of the strongest job growth uh, which has happened. This is the reason why that we, we can, we're going to be able to tackle this problem okay. together. Mr. Kelly, you're an Alberta MP. Do you, do you believe there needs to be direct help from the government uh, for the province of Alberta, perhaps announced as early as tomorrow? Uh, or at the first minister's meeting or maybe in a budget? Do you think Alberta, given what's happening uh, with oil prices lately, do you think Alberta needs direct help? Well, uh, this, this government, uh, I think that the people in my riding, what they have wanted from this government from the beginning is to just stop making things worse. This government has, has, made, has undertaken so many different uh, policy directions that have harmed the workers in my riding. Uh, I have... Uh, workers in my writing that have not worked in four years. Uh, the employment growth... Uh, but but is, is we, the government responsible for the drop in oil prices in the last 48 hours? They're not... Res the, the drop in oil prices uh, of this week, uh, of these last couple of trading days, has been catastrophic. Um, that's, that's not something that's been, been unfolding for the past four years. This is a, a new element to the crisis, and it's going to affect the, the revenues at both the federal and provincial government levels. This is, Does this Alberta is need direct help from the government? Well, it needs a, a government that will stop uh, killing projects. I mean, we have we have seen capital flight uh, from from Canada, but specifically in the energy sector, which affects my province uh, throughout this government's tenure. And uh, to stop punishing the sector that has been such an economic driver for Canada for so right. long would be what I would suggest this government do. Mr. Uh, Mr. Julian, let me move to you. The health minister is consulting the provinces because they've reported a gap in resources in some cases and equipment to deal with uh, a wider outbreak, if that's what we get. Uh, the federal government's looking at bulk procurement of supplies. And I guess my question is this. Are, are you concerned that the government is trying to identify gaps now instead of making sure there are never gaps in preparation for these kinds of medical shocks? Well, of course, yeah, I think that that's the key point, Peter, that, that when the government, when it uh, continued with the Harper error cuts to, to health care funding, uh, left Canada very vulnerable to uh, what we're seeing right now. And thank goodness we've got uh, provincial health authorities that have stepped up in a number of provinces, including British Columbia. Uh, I, I think the important thing is that uh, the government take action, and it has been so slow to actually move forward on these areas uh, that it's, it's uh, quite disconcerting. Uh, I'm hoping that that will be addressed tomorrow. Then there's a broader issue of stimulus, and we believe uh, that we need clean energy stimulus in, in the economy. Uh, we are getting the double shock, of course, of the coronavirus, uh, but also climate change. And as you know, Peter, that's a $10 billion hit to the Canadian economy this year. And when you include the insurance uh, claims that are a part of climate change. And so putting uh, investments into clean energy stimulus yeah 
help get Alberta energy workers back to work in clean energy, where uh, there is a, a profound and growing market in the United States. Right. And, and that would be the smart approach in this budget. Mr. Uh, Mr. Fergus, uh, just and then Mr. Kelly to wrap up on, uh, should, should Canadians be concerned about the level of preparation when they hear that the government's now trying to help, along with provinces, identify gaps in resources and supplies, when I guess a lot of Canadians might have thought that, you know, the, all that stuff is there for when we have something like this, a shock like this that uh, some medical professionals would argue is not entirely unexpected. We knew Look, something like this was going to hit us eventually. Precisely, and this is a reason what the lessons that I think Canadian successive governments have learned since uh, the SARS uh, uh, outbreak back in 2000, in the early 2000s. Um, what we have done is that we set up the Public Health Agency of Canada. We have set up pro uh, procedures and protocols with all the provinces. Uh, we have been working with them from day one, and this is a reason why you see the WHO and you see other uh, 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 epidemic experts uh, all salute and give Canada an A plus in terms of uh, its uh, way that it's been transparent, that it's worked cooperatively amongst all the different governments and making sure that we share that information okay. with Canadians so that we can lower the curve in terms of the uh, outbreak of, uh, of uh, COVID-19. Right. Mr. Kelly, are you satisfied that uh, we're as prepared as we need to be from coast to coast for this? Well, I, I think many Canadians ha are very concerned about whether or not we are uh, that well prepared. Uh, the government has been very slow in, in giving information to Canadians and answering questions about uh, their, their state of, of readiness. So there, there are concerns. And the, press the, conferences every the, day. The, well, the, uh, the, the answers that we have when we, we question the government have not uh, been to the satisfaction of all Canadians and the the preparedness uh, the fiscal preparedness is is absolutely not there and that has been clear from the beginning uh, the the spending taps uh, Peter to your question earlier um, they've been on since this government took office this isn't uh, a question of now turning on the taps the taps have been been going since the beginning and uh, they have eaten up uh, fiscal capacity for us to deal right. with an economic crisis. Uh, quick, quick final comment to you, Mr. Julian. I suppose the, the flip side of that, this conversation, is can any amount of money put into the system prepare you for this kind of an outbreak? Uh, yes, and other countries have, have done that. I, I would suggest that press conferences are not an action plan. And, and so the, the Liberal government has basically been no, spinning its, its wheels at press conferences rather than putting in place the plan that, that needs to be put into place. Right. And I, I'm hoping it's addressed tomorrow. I, uh, I, I certainly hope the government addresses is what has been chronic negligence over the last few weeks. We'll watch and see what we hear tomorrow. Gentlemen, thanks for your time tonight. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. We're going to continue to monitor this, as I said, and uh, keep a close eye on it and provide support for workers. We absolutely want to ensure that workers that are attending workplaces are safe and that uh, they're receiving the support they need. So the government is promising to look out for workers and businesses affected by the COVID-19 outbreak as uh, we continue to chart uh, the path of this outbreak and see where it goes. Government's getting lots of advice on what to do. Let's get a little more of that advice, this time from Dan Kelly. He's the president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, representing 110,000 members across this country. He joins me from Toronto. Dan Kelly, good to see you again. Thanks for taking time to speak with me. Uh, okay, first of all, tell me what you're hearing from your members about the fallout from the COVID-19 outbreak. Have they, have they started feeling the economic effects of this yet? In some sectors, absolutely. Uh, certainly in retail and hospitality 
areas that uh, that focus often on either tourism or or Chinese Canadian or or Asian Canadian clients. Uh, some of those Chinese malls that uh, that have businesses that are members of CFIB, uh, they're telling me that they're cleared right out of customers. Uh, and of course, there's a lot of businesses that are struggling from a supply chain perspective, and they haven't even felt the full uh, after effect of the rail blockades. And now their supplies from China are tied up for a different reason, not because they're stuck in Canada, but because they're they're slow to come uh, from from Asia in the first place. So it's a it's this is a big double whammy. Uh, a whole bunch of businesses already affected, but more than that, a lot of fear and uncertainty, which is we all know is a, a, an enemy of of business stability. All right, let's work, let's walk through some of the uh, proposals you have for the federal government and how it might be able to help. One, well, and I should be clear, not just federal government governments. Uh, yes. Small business owners have uh, have obligations to their employees at times like this. Uh, what are you telling your members uh, about those obligations? What do they need to know as we we may get deeper into this? So that is the top question that we're getting from small business owners is I have an employee that's coming back from uh, from Iran or uh, for, from South Korea or China. Uh, what do I do? Because my other employees are a little bit nervous about having this person fresh back from uh, from an area that has uh, significant amounts of, of COVID. Uh, that we're telling our members, of course, to make sure that they talk to their uh, provincial employment standards agencies, uh, but that if they do need to put them into quarantine or if they don't want to welcome them back uh, right away, that they do need perhaps to consider whether or not they wish to pay that person during that period of time. And this is, again, where government may, may be able to step in it and help. Uh, one area, there are a lot of small businesses that don't offer paid sick time to begin with, uh, so perhaps using the employment insurance system differently may help some of those businesses in the, in the breach. In, in, in what way? Well, you could waive, the government could waive the, the EI waiting period if somebody has uh, is either diagnosed with COVID or is in a quarantine period and has no other form of income support. Um, it would be a big expectation for the employer to have to, 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 uh, to pay them during that period of time. And yet you don't want to have that employee dragging themselves to work if they're, if they're sick or there's a risk that they're sick. Yeah, that's one of the big, uh, that's so one of the big issues we're hearing, right? Is there are going to be some people that some, some organizations have paid sick leave to, to, to some extent for employees, others don't. Uh, but I mean, that's a big challenge, isn't it? To trying to, you know, some employees may want to come to work simply because they need the paycheck and don't have sick leave. You're absolutely right, uh, especially for in retail and hospitality. Uh, paid sick time is is not something that is is particularly commonplace. And even those that do have paid sick time, often unless you're in the public sector, it runs out after perhaps five or ten days, uh, and the and the quarantine period is often two weeks for for the disease. So we need to make sure that there are steps that are put in place, and businesses, of course, can play their part in that. But perhaps having a rebate of the sick time during a quarantine period might be something that the federal government wishes to consider through the EI system to ensure that that both the business isn't directly affected, but also that the individual that is in quarantine or perhaps uh, is sick with uh, with COVID uh, has income support during that period of time too. Okay, let's talk about the remittance of sales taxes. You've, you've got a proposal, a suggestion on that. What are you, what are you asking for? So, uh, of course, gov uh, small businesses are huge tax collectors. Uh, a lot of people forget that small the, 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 the business community actually collects and then remits the GST or HST to the federal government. Uh, and if they're late, even by a couple of days with those, uh, with those payments, uh, they get clobbered with penalties and interest. 
and in the face of other disasters, other challenges uh, to the economy, uh, the federal government, the Canada Revenue Agency, has provided some leniency uh, in in making sure that, that that money does get remitted and remitted on time. If you're dealing with a, a, an outbreak, you're dealing with a, a sick employee, or your business has dropped considerably, uh, having some leniency built into the system so that 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 you may have you're not going to get uh, whacked with a penalty or interest charge uh, after two days of being late. Uh, seems like a reasonable proposal. I, I said the same thing to the provincial finance minister here in Ontario just uh, earlier this morning when we met. And you've also suggested, look, uh, how about a break from audits if we're dealing with a with a with the uh, the negative effects of a COVID nineteen outbreak? Uh, tell me about that. Yeah. So again, we're look there, for many businesses right now. It's business as usual, and we're not suggesting to government that they need to halt any uh, enforcement measures. Uh, but there are a host of government agencies, from workers' compensation, workplace safety, federal, provincial agencies that drop in on businesses often on a moment's notice. And if you are up to your eyeballs with uh, with either sick employees uh, or your business is way down. It's not the best time to then have a government inspector knocking on your door, chasing you for some paperwork. Uh, so ensuring that 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 these agencies do have the flexibility to put these things off uh, for a period when it is more business as as usual uh, makes a lot of sense to us. And and most government agencies, when we've raised that with them, have done just that. And and we're reminding fe the federal government of of ensuring that and and provincial governments uh, to ensure that that flexibility exists. And what happens if some uh, smaller, medium-sized businesses? Uh, what if they have to shut down completely because of, you know, sickness in in their workplace where you know. Uh, so many of their employees may be quarantined or off sick that they, they can't actually function. Uh, what, what can the government do for them or what can governments do for them? Well, in, in, in some respects, it's the creative use of the EI system to perhaps waive waiting periods so that, that their employees can, can have income support a lot more quickly without having to wait two weeks for that to happen, ensuring that there is capacity within the EI system to process these claims quickly and, and get the money out to the people that need it uh, is part of this. But it's not just employers that, that have somebody that diagnosed with COVID that, 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 that are facing the problem. Uh, a member of ours uh, in Toronto said that uh, that supplies the uh, the hospitality industry, who supplies hotels with food, said that her business is down 75% uh, since the COVID outbreak because of a drop in tourism uh, to the GTA. That's a huge drop. And, and, and she may be facing layoffs of some of her employees, uh, not because they have COVID, just because the, the tourism is not there, That especially from uh, some of the Pacific Rim countries that bring in a lot of tourists to Canada. The same is true of, of, uh, of, of other parts of Canada that do benefit from a lot of tourism. Uh, you think of our national parks like Banff um, and even heavy Chinese-Canadian uh, communities like Markham, Ontario, Richmond, B.C. Um, there, there are some ghost towns out there in certain parts of the country uh, because of either the fear of COVID or the drop in tourism. Uh, that this is that this is created. There's there's always uh, there's lots of anxiety around this, of course. And there's always a desire for answers and uh, solutions as quickly as possible, and, and there's lots of pressure on the government to to deliver that. Um, how, how satisfied are you to this point uh, for the way they're handling this and and the, and the way they're messaging the role they expect to play if this gets worse? Well, it's certainly better than I think the, uh, the 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 slow response to the the rail blockades. Uh, the government has been reaching out. We're pleased to see that there is a cabinet committee, and they have a lot of the right ministers or ministries involved in that. Uh, so there has been uh, some response, and and obviously we're expecting more as we move towards the federal budget, uh, whenever that's going to be. 
but uh, but we're hoping, of course, one of our main messages to the government is is let's not make it worse. Uh, they're they're in the midst of a significant increase in the overall tax burden on the business community with the CPP premium increase that just happened earlier in the earlier this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things we're calling for, Donald Trump just announced in the U.S. that they're looking at payroll tax relief uh, for businesses in in the U.S. That's something that I think the federal government should consider. Uh, again, I mean these are early days. We haven't seen widespread uh, COVID-related problems in Canada, but we do need to prepare for this. And, and you know, certainly some of the steps that have ta- been taken are at least a helpful beginning to the process. All right, Dan Kelly, uh, good to hear from you today, and uh, we'll talk again. Take care. Anytime. The Special Cabinet Committee on COVID-19 met this afternoon to talk about the federal response to the outbreak, and we will get the details of the financial assistance measures from the Prime Minister on Wednesday. The Deputy Prime Minister, she chairs the Special Committee, spoke about the need to respond to the impact of lower oil prices on the energy sector, that's Christian Freeland, and the Health Minister, Patty Haidu, spoke about the ongoing planning with the provinces to ensure they're ready if the outbreak surges. Let's hear from those two ministers. We have been, I'd like to emphasize, uh, have uh, had excellent collaboration with all the provinces and territories across Canada on this issue. Health ministers have been meeting and working together regularly and are working together very effectively. We are working on bulk procurement for the health sector, among other things. And I'd like to emphasize for Canadians that The federal government understands that this is an issue that really calls for federal leadership. We are providing that and we will provide that. This is not a moment or an issue where it is appropriate to quibble about what is the jurisdiction or the job of the federal government and what is the jurisdiction of the provinces. It's an area where we need to work together. We're committed to that and I believe we're doing it very effectively thus far. The First Minister's meeting comes at a useful time because we'll be able to talk about that coordination, that collective work in person. You've been responsible for the stabilization file. Obviously, the lower oil prices is making things worse, even worse in the oil patch. So uh, there's some impatience there that Ottawa hasn't responded yet. Uh, where is that? Uh, so that's a couple of questions together, but let me just say when it comes to the coronavirus uh, and the economic effects, Clearly, one of the consequences uh, which has been most visible, particularly uh, this week, but for some time, but with a a real uh, market impact yesterday, uh, is the impact on the oil and gas sector. I had a good conversation with Secretary Mike Pompeo, the U.S. Secretary of State, about a number of things yesterday, including the oil and gas sector, and, and we talked about how the North American oil and gas sector needs to be supported by our countries, which it is. So we are very mindful of uh, what is happening right now with the oil and gas sector, the consequences for oil and gas workers, and that is something that we are definitely focused on. How prepared are Canadian hospitals for for COVID at this point? Listen, um, they are as prepared as they can be given uh, given the circumstances and we're working with provinces and territories right now to assess how we can further prepare them for any kind of surge activity. But I will remind you that right now what we're trying to do is prevent that surge activity. We know that right now uh, hospitals are working actively on a very busy influenza season. There's a lot of work going on to try and treat people who are severely ill with the flu. So uh, as I've said before, our public health measure is really to try and delay 
delay any onset of any surge of illness. And just to follow up on that, how is the drug supply? Are there, is there enough drugs in the Canadian system at this point? It's a broad question, and of course, different drugs might differ. But right now, obviously, other than uh, you know shortages that we're monitoring, we have not heard from uh, specific regions about very specific drug shortages. That's something we continue to work on with our provinces, with provinces and territories. What's the main strategy of containment? Since the the um, uh, teams like uh, in the NHL, the NBA has uh, forbidden access to locker rooms to journalists. We're in pretty close contact here. <laughs> Do you uh, want me to back up? Do you, we we uh, want us to back up. We enjoy scrumming you, but in all seriousness, is okay. that something that could be considered, right. or is that a totally different situation compared with the uh, professional uh, <laughs> hockey teams? I'm sorry, this journalist just coughed and made me laugh to Canadians who are watching. Um, listen, there are measures we can do, uh, even when we are working closely like this, that can uh, further increase our protection. So, for example, we can all make sure we're washing our hands a lot. Uh, it is really important that we remember that it helps uh, reduce any kind of uh, bacteria or viruses that we might be passing on to one another unwittingly. We can cover our coughs with our arms should we have to cough and obviously I talk a lot so my throat gets dry so I, I sometimes uh, you know have to cough so I'm trying to uh, cough into my arm a very good public health measure. Um, we can stand two meters away from each other so that any droplets that are uh, expressed actually have less of a likelihood to land on our face and therefore it, yeah, more easily absorbed by our own system. So these are things that we can do in our everyday life life. Uh, but I also will remind Canadians that right now the risk is low because we don't have incredible community transmission. And, you know, Dr. Tam is very clear that when that begins to happen, we will know. And we will let Canadians know uh, each case as it comes forward, you know, what we're seeing, uh, what we're seeing in terms of general trends, epidemiological trends, uh, what kinds of regions are affected. And as you know, we've been daily giving you updates in terms of numbers and provinces affected. Uh, and we will continue to do that. So Canadians will will not be surprised uh, and and that is that is the also also important remember so to remember still scrumming I would say right now it, the risk is low, but uh, I will also say that it's important, again, given that many of us do travel a lot, that we do practice those public health measures that can reduce our own risk of contracting any virus or bacteria, including this one. Uh, many of us and many, many members of Parliament are on planes and trains, and so it's really important that we uh, take care of ourselves as people that uh, travel extensively and are exposed to a wide variety of pathogens in our environment. There are a lot of talks about measures that the government could take to alleviate the, the, the fears, but also the uh, financial burden for people who have to be quarantined. Should we expect for the budget to see that, or when sh when should we expect that? I think you'll uh, we'll be able to come forward soon. As my colleague, the Minister of Finance, said, we're working right now on some details, and we'll be able to tell you soon. Obviously, I, I don't have a date for you, but I will say this, that we will have Canadians back. So we will make sure that Canadians are supported from a health and safety perspective, that we have the measures in place to protect their health, and that we are able to protect them in an economic downturn situation where uh, people have been is affected by uh, job loss or by, uh, by illness. Is that a, a, a question? of amount like if you have only a few hundred people on quarantine maybe we don't need to put forward a program but if we have thousands we do. Like, is that a question of waiting how to see how many people have to be quarantined? I think it's really important that whatever measures we take, they need to be proportionate with the risk, but we also have to be uh, ready for anything that rapidly changes. And we know with uh, the spread of virus, there are measures that we can take to reduce the risk of it spreading, but sometimes it does, and we need to be ready for that and 
to support Canadians from a health perspective, to making sure they get their health needs met, but also from an economic perspective as uh, we see measures that may disrupt, for example, their ability to make a living or have impacts on specific sectors. So we're working on a package and we'll be coming back to Canada Air, shortly. Air Canada just Dr. Isaac Bogutch is an infectious disease physician at the Toronto General Hospital. We've reached him tonight in Côte d'Ivoire in Africa. Uh, Dr. Bogutch, first of all, thanks for taking time to take my call. I appreciate it. Oh, not a problem. As you watch uh, how the response has rolled out in this country, how satisfied are you uh, so far that public health officials in Canada are doing and saying all the right things here? Well, I think uh, certainly at the federal level, we've had uh, very good messaging and trans uh, transparency from uh, our chief public health officer, Dr. Teresa Tam, and we, you know, had uh, a plan in place, and, and this was communicated to the Canadian public. At the provincial level, where really the rubber hits the road, where where we've got, uh, you know, policy that truly affects uh, individuals, because that's how that's how uh, uh, healthcare is really uh, guided in, in Canada. You know, it's been variable across the, 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 the provinces. And some provinces, I think, have been more communicative than others. I think uh, many provinces should follow the lead of British Columbia, where they've had, you know, very uh, frequent updates and, and, uh, and uh, a lot of transparency over, you know, diagnostic testing and rollout of testing and where to go for help. So British Columbia, I think, is, has done the best that I can see so far. We see the cases creeping up sort of day by day. Uh, does that tell us that what we're doing is working, that we kind of have it under control, or is it just a matter of time before the cases increase much more rapidly and we start seeing bigger numbers every day? Unfortunately, I think it's the latter. Uh, we, you know, this is not unexpected. We know that uh, we're, we're not able to wall off the country. We know cases were going to come into Canada. And as this infection creeps around the entire world and the global burden gets bigger, we're just going to see more and more imported cases into Canada. And then, of course, we're going to start to see locally acquired cases, which we've already seen one in, in British Columbia. And, of course, we'll very likely see many more of those to come in the, in the weeks and months ahead. The key thing here is to mitigate how steep the curve is, how, how steep the rise in cases is in Canada. I mean, we're, there's things that we can do to... to flatten out that uh, steep curve by, you know, social distancing and, you know, maybe working from home or spreading out a little bit more and practicing impeccable hand hygiene. And these are things that we can do to sort of lessen the, uh, the uh, epidemic curve. And, 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 you know, if we do that, hopefully our our system will be able to manage the uh, influx of cases that we're going to see. Right. Uh, the, 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 that's advice to uh, uh, Canadians on uh, as we watch where this uh, this outbreak might take us. But does does it argue for greater restrictions coming from the government uh, on the movement of people in our communities, restrictions on large gatherings, as we've seen implemented in other countries, as opposed to advice? Is it time for actual government policy? Yeah. I mean, certainly that. I think all cards are on the table. And I think those should be very real discussions that we have. Are we there right now in Canada where it's time to do it? Uh, maybe, but maybe it's a little bit too early. But, I mean, everyone should be having the conversation. So schools and employers and, you know, anyone who works in a, in, in a building with lots of people, uh, these are conversations that, should be, that they should be having about, you know, preparing for the next few weeks to months ahead because, you know, no one really has a crystal ball, but we have to be prepared. And certainly, uh, you know, strategies where people might be able to work from home or strategies where, you know, maybe stadiums aren't sold out to capacity, but they sell 
half the seats or some fraction of the seats or some maybe there'll be some cancellations of, of large gatherings. These are things that we can do to sort of mitigate transmission of this infection in the community. And we've seen it successfully employed, maybe not to the same extent as in China, but places like uh, Japan and, and South Korea have done this uh, quite successfully there. The health minister, Patty Haidu, says some provinces have indicated they they, they don't have all the supplies they might need to respond to the COVID-19 outbreak, ventilators, perhaps other key pieces of medical equipment, uh, and that the federal government is working now to have the provinces identify those gaps in, in uh, looking at bulk buying and so that uh, everybody can be ready for this. And I guess I'm wondering, are you surprised to hear that there are these gaps in supply issues when, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that medical professionals such as yourself, uh, were, were we not expecting some kind of an outbreak uh, such as this at some point, and are we as prepared as we should have been? Yeah, I mean, after SARS, for example, there was a big call to say to make sure that we had uh, capacity in the hospitals and in intensive care units and had the right ventilators. Uh, so I think it's a, it's a, it will be a, a rude awakening if we are not prepared, given our, our experience with SARS and, and the lessons that we should have learned from this. Now, there certainly are lessons that were learned from SARS that we're seeing now. I mean, I think our, our public health infrastructure to date has managed this beautifully. I mean, uh, we, we've identified lots of cases. We've ruled in and ruled out lots of cases. We've massively scaled up diagnostic capacity. Uh, right now, what's happening is um, in the next zero to two weeks, you're going to see dedicated COVID-19 clinics popping up across the country. So we reduce uh, the burden in emergency departments and in, in hospitals. So, you know, things are happening, like tangible, helpful things are happening. But of course, you know, uh, sadly, a small proportion of people will get, will get sick and require hospitalization. A small proportion of those people will require an intensive care unit. And sadly, a small proportion of those people are going to, will succumb to this illness. Uh, uh but if that's, a, if there's an absolute large number of individuals that get sick quickly, uh, you know, there's the potential that, uh, our, we might not have the, uh, resources necessary, and that that would be that would be tragic. Now, China's massive public health um, endeavors really gave the world about two months to uh, to prepare. Uh, I hope we use those two months wisely. All right, Dr. Bogic, uh, thanks so much for your time. Uh, always good to get your perspective. Appreciate it. And anytime. Have a good one. Well, let's turn our attention now to the race for the Conservative Party leadership. There's a newcomer in the contest who isn't widely known to many Conservatives, and she is one of only two women in the race. And this approach is a little different. She wants to neutralize warnings that Conservatives have a hidden agenda by trumpeting that agenda instead. Uh, instead. So uh, let's find out more about that. Leslyn Lewis is a Toronto lawyer, and she is with me now. Uh, good to see you. Thanks for coming in to speak with me. Thanks for having uh, me. What do we need to know about Leslyn Lewis? Uh, let's have a bit of an introduction. What do, I, what do Canadians need to know about you? Well, I'm a loving mother of two and I am a lawyer. I also have my own business, my own law firm, and so I understand the struggles of small business owners. And I'm also, I've also um, taught at the university, at York University, mm -hmm. and I've also represented international, um, Canadian companies internationally. Okay, you, uh, you were a conservative candidate, kind of a last minute candidate in, tw in 2015, but uh, you don't have a, a really long track record as an active conservative within the, within the party that I can see. Uh, so why have you decided that this is the time that you believe you're the right person to seek 
the leadership of this party? Well, I've actually been active in the party since about 2009 in various capacities, and I did run in 2015. And at this point in time, I just feel that the direction that the country's going, I, I don't like the direction that the country's going. I'm worried that the country that I was raised in and the opportunities that I've had won't be there for my children. The direction of the country and the direction of the party as well? Yes. What concerns you about the direction of the party? Well, I see divisions within the party, and I'm concerned about the democratic process. I'm concerned about people in the party having a voice. And because we have differing views within the party, I, I still think that those views need to be heard and that we need to trust democracy. We need to trust the process and, and have everybody's views be heard. Uh, why do you think that is? What, what, what do you think has happened within the party that has sort of tamped down those, uh, those differing views or, or put, a, put a tamper on debate? I actually think that it's fear. I think that there's a fear that because we last, lost the last election, that if we entertain certain values, that we will lose another election. And I, and I think that's what's causing the division. And you don't believe that? So, I don't believe that at all. Okay, you, you say you want to neutralize efforts to paint conservatives with the hidden agenda brush, which we've seen in a lot of elections. So you want to put your agenda out there up front. And so let, let's talk about that. What, and, and chief among those uh, agenda items is the issue of abortion. So what about abortion and a woman's right to choose? Would you uh, be moving to legally restrict abortions in this country? No, I've set out my agenda, my abortion agenda, and the four things that I would do. So I would stop the misogynist practice of sex-selective abortion, and I believe that over 90% of Canadians agree that a fetus shouldn't be terminated on the sole um, principle that it's a girl. I would also stop coerced abortion, and that's also not a divisive issue. The majority of Canadians agree that a woman should not be coerced into an abortion. I would also promote pregnancy care centres, which aid women who are in crisis. And I think that people agree that we should be there for women who are in crisis and pregnant. And I would also defund overseas abortion because I don't believe that taxpayers' dollars should be used to fund overseas abortion. There are other aids that we could, that we could uh, target that money towards. Okay, what, what about late-term abortions in this country? Would you move to restrict those, to, to ban those? Well, I, I don't believe in late-term abortions. I don't believe in any abortions because I'm, I'm pro-life. Mm -hmm. However, that's not a part of my um, platform at this time. I've laid out the four issues that I would be dealing with. Okay. So, uh, and, and how do you see that, uh, in, if you're leading the Conservative Party, how do you see that issue brought to the fore? Is, that, is, that a, is this uh, change that you would lead or you would encourage members of the caucus who feel this way to bring it forward and then allow that to be a free vote within the caucus or is this something as leader you will champion you will lead this fight well actually I believe that there should be free votes on these issues and there are a number of um, MPs in Parliament that would champion these issues and as leader I'm I would want to unite the party and so I would speak to caucus first and then come up with a a general plan moving forward but these are issues that I believe in myself. Well, there, there's a bill before Parliament now that's been put forward by a, a Conservative MP that uh, uh, would uh, take action against uh, sex-selective abortion. So it, it's in Parliament. It's being debated. It will be debated. So how would your approach be different? She has presented that. Right. So I would support that. Right. I would support her, her motion. Okay. So on this particular issue, uh, you know, Stephen Harper had success as a, a, the last Conservative Prime Minister in this country by saying he wouldn't reopen these debates, he, 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 wouldn't, uh, uh, he, he wouldn't allow them to, to, to move to the fore, and he had success in, in bringing together different 
sort of voting communities in this country. And are, are you worried at all that taking this approach, that is viewed as reopening the abortion debate and there's an audience that won't support that? It is not because the majority of Canadians agree that we need to deal with these issues and these issues are all in the party platform. So I don't believe that it's reopening in a bait, the, the debate because I don't believe the debate was ever closed. I think that we always have to talk about uh, rights and values and that we, sh in a free and democratic society, we should be open to talking about all issues. So what happened in the last election? I mean, Andrew Scheer had trouble dealing with these questions, uh, same-sex marriage, uh, a woman's right to choose and the party couldn't win enough seats to form government. Do you think that, what kind of a role do you think that played in his election loss? I mean, you talked about it earlier. You think people are afraid to talk about it because they think it cost the last election. You don't think it cost the last election? I don't. I actually don't. I just, I think that if you're clear on what you intend to do and people know what you intend to do, then you let the democratic process unfold. And I think that the problem arises when people have hidden agendas and I don't want to put forth a hidden agenda. What about same-sex marriage? It's, it's the law of the land in this country. What would you do about that? Well, it, that's not a part of my platform because I don't plan to change the definition of marriage. But if someone in the caucus brought it forward and said it's time to reopen this conversation you would support that or you would as leaders say that's not what we're doing I don't think there's an appetite for that I don't think that um, people want to um, talk about that and if if they do and somebody brings forth a motion then we let the democratic process unfold as we do with any issue okay um, but it's not something that I that is in my well, it, it would be it would be at odds with current party policy, which is to remain neutral on who, who gets married, and that's the position you support. Yes. And if it's brought forward by someone else in the caucus, you would argue against it. Well, if it's but allow it, the process to come forward. Right, and and if it's against party policy, then the party policy has to change, and it, and there's a process for doing that. You would get your delegates, and then you would go to a convention, and you would change a party policy. So. All of my positions that I'm bringing forth are actually in line with party policy. What's your plan to deal with climate change? Well, I believe that we should be good stewards in the, of the environment. So my environmental plan is to make sure that Canadians, all Canadians, have clean air, clean water, and uncontaminated land. Um, you are at odds. Let's talk about the two the two men that everybody describes as the front runners, Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole. Um, They've said they would try to force an election this fall. You think they're wrong. How come? Well, I don't think that we have the seats. We, we don't have the numbers to force an election. So I, I find it very disingenuous for me to promise something that I know that I can't deliver on on my own. Well, their argument, I spoke to Aaron O'Toole uh, yesterday about this, and his argument is, look, it's important for us as the official opposition uh, to let conservatives know where we stand. So you may not have the votes, but you pass a, you, you move a motion in Parliament saying, Canadians have lost confidence, the House has lost confidence, and you make that statement. And you're saying what, it's purely symbolic? I think it's symbolic because we can't force the election, number one. And number two, in speaking with the members, the, the grassroots want their their voices to be heard. And we have a convention coming up in November in Quebec, and many people want to go there and set the direction of the party. In addition, the local EDAs want to make sure that they have viable candidates, and they need time to prepare for that. What do you think of those? They're the two front runners. What do you think of their candidacies? What do you think of Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole? In what capacity? Are, you would obviously think you'd be a better leader of the party than, than either of those two men. How come? 
Well, I, I, there are a number of issues, but I think one issue that I'm very strong on is the environment, and I don't think that our party has focused enough on environmental issues. In addition, I think that our party needs to be more compassionate. We need to make sure that the vulnerable in our society are taken care of, and I think that's that's something that's been missing from our party um, from from their campaigns. On stewards of the environment, do you favor a carbon tax? No, I don't actually, because I believe that that tax is burdenous on largely lower income families. Okay, a couple of things to finish on. You, you've uh, you've also raised some questions about the about the way the race is being run and, and the rules. Your, uh, the timing of debates, uh, for instance. What's your complaint there? Well, the the issue is that. Uh, all the debates happen after the candidacies are closed. And so many people would like to hear from the candidates beforehand and then maybe contribute to them or donate to them or, or you know, support them in some capacity. But because it will be done afterwards, they won't have that opportunity. Do you think that's stacked against you know, candidates such as yourself that maybe uh, don't have the profile of, of, of some of the others and who need that opportunity to get... To, to be known before the, the cutoff of March 25th and all the money has to be raised and, and then the debates take place? Well, I don't think it's deliberate, but it's an unintended consequence that because I don't have the name recognition that the other two frontrunners do have, that the debates would have been a good opportunity for people to see me, yes. Okay. Um, you need to raise uh, $300,000 by March 25th. Uh, where are you on that? We're a third of the way there. And that's a couple of weeks to go. Uh, yep. mm -hmm. You're confident you'll, you'll have that money? And I think we have good momentum, and I, I think that we'll be, I'm very confident that we'll be able to do that. All right, Leslyn Lewis, uh, welcome to the race. Good to have a chance Thank to talk you. to you. I hope we get a chance to talk again. Thank you. Well, we have an update now on the ongoing efforts to resolve the land claims dispute that resulted in those rail blockades and protests across Canada. A Wet'suwet'en hereditary chief told a parliamentary committee today that the voices of women and dissidents are being shut out of this whole process. CPAC's Martin Stringer was at the committee meeting today, and he joins me now. Martin, we had two ministers there and this hereditary chief. What did we hear today? Well, Peter, for the most part, for the first part of the committee hearing, for almost an hour, the uh, Minister of Crown, uh, Federal Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations, Carolyn Bennett, got a grilling from Conservative members on the committee over why the agreement in principle signed with the government was only negotiated with the five hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en who are opposed to the pipeline, and not from with other members of the community, many of whom support the pipeline. Pipeline. Now, one of the people doing the grilling was the committee vice chair, Conservative Jamie Schmail. The problem we had with the, those meetings the minister was having is that the elected chiefs, for the most part, were not included. There were other voices that were not included this this meeting, and they were only listening to one side of this debate. And when we're talking about title, and we're talking about the impacts and the implications that that has when agreements are negotiated. That has impacts within the community itself, within the nation itself. So by excluding a certain set of voices, you are not having a fulsome debate. All right, Martin, so the point made there by Jamie Schmail, how did the uh, Minister Carolyn Bennett respond? Well, the Minister argued uh, before the committee that the negotiations didn't deal with the pipeline and that the agreement itself deals with a larger issue of land claim and title, and she says that the hereditary chiefs are the legitimate spokesperson for the Wet'suwet'en. She also said that she sat down with them because they were the ones at the centre of the conflict. She also argues that if there are any shortcomings in the process, they will all be worked out because the agreement is being put to the Wet'suwet'en as we speak. 
We have said from the beginning, this, this, these decisions will be taken in the Wet'suwet'en Nation, by the Wet'suwet'en people in their way. And that means in their houses and their clans, that they will, they will take this decision as a nation. It isn't, it isn't about um, the, 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 a, uh, the province of British Columbia or Canada. This is a nation decision as to whether what has been a proposed arrangement for how we would work forward on the implementation of their rights and title, whether that is agreeable um, to the nation. But the Wet'suwet'en Nation is far from in agreement about how things have worked out. Chief Teresa Tate-Day told the committee today that the whole process is tainted. She says that all the hereditary chiefs weren't at the negotiating table. She's a hereditary chief herself. She leads a group of women community leaders called the Matrilineal Coalition. They weren't involved in the negotiations. Now, Chief Tate-Day says that the meetings that have been held so far aren't democratic and that she claims that women and supporters of the pipeline are being systematically left out. The minister says this is now being put to the Wet'suwet'en Nation, that there have been clan meetings there and there's going to be... Meetings. Yes, they are. What's, what's wrong with that process? That, that's fine. Clan meetings are fine. But when you have a clan meeting of three or four people at that clan meeting, that doesn't, that's not adequate to fully engage with the rest of the membership. Is um, there are plans afoot, or we've been told, for a large meeting of the whole community? What can you tell us about that? I have not heard that. Um, if there were to be a large, inclusive meeting of the entire nation, of the Wet'suwet'en in general, say in Burns Lake or in Smithers or wherever, would that help? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that as we've asked the five males to have that public meeting and to give us their intention and what they perceive to do with uh, this whole question of title and rights and how are they going to go forward, I have no uh, confidence that they are going to be able to do that because they have literally left us women out of that discussion. You have said, too, that this is not just about women, it's not just about some hereditary chiefs against other hereditary chiefs, but this is about proponents of the pipeline, those who want to see the pipeline built. Yeah. What's your estimation about how many people are in favor of the pipeline, and is, that, is any of this discussion that you had with the minister or that was had with the minister going to solve that problem? Well, like I say, uh, I'd like to see a democratic system of decision-making, and what we have right now is a system where the band-elected chiefs got their uh, permission from their community members and the six bands and what said they've done a survey that 80% wanted this project to go ahead. And one house group started off with a protest and it was all based on uh, and all of the environmentalists jumped on board. And it has become something like a money-making thing, I think, you know, uh, because the protesters are being supported by uh, outside influences. What about when people say that the proponents of the pipeline have been bought off as well? There's a lot of rhetoric going around. There's a lot of accusations. Well, you know what? We are entitled to a benefit from our land. They want to go and put a pipeline through our land. They want to rent that land, and they want to give us a benefit. That was the extent of the Delgamukasewit decision in 1997. That was a consultation and accommodation, and that's what we have right now. But as a nation, we need to make a decision about major projects, and we need to get an, a stake in those projects. You're going to meet with the minister. Yes. What's, uh, what can solve this problem? 
How can we solve it? I think we need an overarching governance model that is inclusive and uh, that is uh, democratic in decision making. We he says, though, that that's what you're negotiating. She no. says that she's got an agreement in principle to do that or to at well, least settle. I don't settle. know that. I haven't seen that. You haven't seen I the document. Haven't, I haven't seen the document. I've asked for the document. So how fair is it? Is that true? I mean, if I can't get a document as hereditaries and others can't, then uh, what does that say about the process? That's a good question. Uh, Martin, what does it say about the process and where, I guess, where do we go from here? Well, as you heard, there are reports and rumors of a community-wide meeting to decide on the agreement in principle, possibly by the end of this week, but nothing is confirmed. And there's obviously still a lot of confusion surrounding the whole question, which of course leaves the whole bigger question of the coastal gas link pipeline issue still very much unresolved. All right, Martin Stringer, we'll continue to follow the story. Thank you. You're welcome. That is all for another edition of Primetime Politics on CPAC, the cable public affairs channel. I'm Peter Van Dusen. Thanks for watching. I'll see you next time.